right, if you're uh, able and willing to join us to stand this morning and worship, I invite you to, amen. Yeah. 
praise. Amen. Yes, Lord. Standing on the rock. Yes, Lord. Come on, make I want to be close, close to your side. So heaven is real and death is a lie. I want to hear voices of angels above singing as one. Oh,
the number of ways or reasons for which your name should be lifted high. Even if you never did a single thing for us, God, your name is worthy of our praise because of who you are and your beauty and splendor and your glory, your mighty power, your sovereignty, your unconditional and steadfast love and faithfulness. God, you are worthy to be exalted. But when we think about the ways in which you have come to mankind and revealed yourself, displayed your glory in creation, in redemption, in a thousand other ways that you show your might and your love. God, I, we just step back this morning and offer up our worship to you, the one who is worthy of all praise and exaltation. Lord, I pray this morning that, that th those words that we sang are not just empty words upon our lip, but they are an overflow of our heart. Hearts that are blessed, hearts that have been by your word, hearts that have been strengthened by your spirit, hearts that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We exalt you, O God, for giving us your spirit. We exalt you, O God, for sending your son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die and to, as we're going to celebrate this morning, to rise again from the grave. We exalt you, O God, for being who you are and for orchestrating this plan of redemption. Lord, may worship be our primary language as we think about you. God, speak to our hearts through your words and, and, and give us understanding in the truths of Scripture today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Excellent singing. I love, I love hearing the voices of God's people uh, lifted on high to our God. If you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do nearby, uh, there's some in the pews if you don't happen to have one with you, uh, join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And while you're turning there, uh, I just want to say, rumor has it that the, um, the ladies had an amazing time the other night, amazing time of prayer and worship. And uh, we hope that we're going to be able to uh, celebrate some more of those things. But guys, we've got some, some work to do if we're going to uh, catch up. So not that it's a competition or anything, but it kind of is. So uh, I, I just, I, I, I rejoiced at the testimonies I heard of the way God's, uh, God was working the other night. And we're just looking forward to seeing what he's going to do in the coming weeks and months 
And um, I hope you can join us tonight as we spend some time in prayer um, here at 6 p.m. and, and just some, some time discussing how we can um, further just uh, add fuel to the fire and continue to grow in a spirit of prayer here at Brown Corners. I also just want to extend a special welcome to you. If you happen to be here for the first time, or um, we, we saw some folks back today for the first time in, in quite some time, and so we're, we're glad you're worshiping with us, and um, if it, it does happen to be your first time, I'm going to invite you to stop in at the Welcome Center out there, as you're just right outside these doors. There's, uh, we have a free gift for you, and uh, if you have questions, we'd love to be able to answer them about Brown Corners. Also, I want to invite you to, uh, if you have a, a binder next to you in the pew, to uh, pass that around. Uh, that's a chance for you to jot your name down and um, to, to check off some boxes. There's a few different questions on there if, if you have for us. Uh, let's, it just gives you an opportunity to sort of communicate with us. There's, there's uh, some prayer cards in there that you can put in the offering boxes on the back wall and let us know how we can pray for you and some of those kinds of things. We invite you to u- utilize those, uh, those there. Um, First Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, we are picking up where we left off. I, 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 if you remember, I cheated a little bit and went ahead on Easter Sunday, and we jumped forward to First Corinthians 15, even though we weren't there yet, because the whole chapter is about the resurrection. And so we looked at the first 11 verses back at the beginning of April, and now, chronologically, we've arrived at chapter 15, and, and we said just from those verses, we talked about the, the resurrection being historically factual, theologically central, and radically personal. And we're going to read um, a, a good chunk of this lengthy chapter here this morning, and we're going to just make a few other observations about this amazing passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to start at verse 12, and we're going to read all the way through verse 49. We're not going to be able to look at each verse individually this morning, but I wanted to just get a sense of the, fl- the flow of Paul's discussion and, and just re- be able to read this, uh, the majority of this chapter and all of its beauty together. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ." Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, 
all things are put in subjection. It's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do you mean by, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Oh, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of of the man of heaven. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. This lengthy passage, and there's more to come. We'll talk about some that we can't get to this week. We'll finish it up next week. This lengthy passage lets us know that there's an issue in Corinth, right? What else is new? There's, there's lots of issues in Corinth. This one doesn't seem, Paul doesn't seem to be quite as amped up about this. Uh, it, it may be more of a, a misunderstanding rather than people intentionally stirring up strife and, and, and spreading false teaching. But there seems to be this idea that had, had, had gathered steam a little bit that said that the physical body was not all that important. In fact, uh, th there was, there's this idea from, from Greek paganism and uh, uh, Platonic dualism that said that the physical, what we can see and feel and touch, is lesser than, it's not important really, but what is spiritual, what is unseen, the soul, that's the only thing that matters. 
And so th there seemed to be even an idea that that was sort of creeping in and, and causing doubt or concern about the resurrection. There seemed to be some who were saying, well, uh, if that's the case, then, then maybe there's not a physical resurrection after all. Uh, we're just disembodied spirits in heaven. We're not really clear on what their view of the afterlife was. It doesn't seem that they were denying that, that there was an afterlife. It just sort of seems that they were really downplaying certainly the physical body and the resurrection, but maybe even more so what, what we would enjoy in eternity. And so Paul uh, needs to speak into this and he is going to let them know that that's, that's not the biblical view of the human body. You see, from the very beginning of Scripture, we see that we cannot separate the body from the soul. Who we are, who you are as individuals out there, I could start calling you out by name, but who you are as individuals, it's not just your soul, it's not just your body, it's, it's the combination of the material and the immaterial that makes you, you. In fact, when we read in Genesis 2-7, right as God was creating uh, Adam, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. What's interesting is that the Hebrew word, therefore, uh, that's, that's translated living being or living creature is often translated soul. The, the point that man, that Adam became a person, a living creature, was when God joined his body, the dust, with spirit, with the breath of God, brought the two together, and that's when he became a person. Adam was not a living human being until he had both the material and the immaterial, the physical and the spiritual. The essence of who we are is not just spirit, but it's spirit joined with a body. Your body does not merely house the real you. It is a, as much a part of who you are as your spirit is. In our Western culture, we've adopted a little bit of that platonic dualism. And, and even in how we talk about Christ. I mean, we, we spend much more time talking about his deity, his godness, than we do his humanity. The fact that he could feel pain. The fact that he, he wept at funerals. And, and laughed and, and had emotions and, and at times didn't know the Father's plan. We are both body and soul. And what Paul is going to do is say, unless we have a good theology of the body and the soul being one, and a good theology of the resurrection, we bump into a, a great many theological problems down the road. He wants to make it absolutely clear that we can't separate the resurrection of Christ from the future resurrection of his followers. But without understanding uh, this whole big picture of what makes us us, the resurrection begins to get muddied. And so what we're going to look at, we're just going to look at two really broad uh, categories and like I said, we're gonna, there's some verses that we're not going to have time to touch here in this passage this morning. But uh, Paul wants us, first of all, to understand the necessity of the resurrection. He says, listen, the resurrection has to happen. If, if we are not physically raised from the, from the dead one day, um, well, he lists um, 
about eight or ten different things here in the next few verses that be, begin to be sort of the trickle-down effect. You know, it's, it's just like, uh, did, you ever, did you ever play that, um, that game Kerplunk? It's just an anxiety-inducing game, right? But it's like you, you pull one out, and all, or like Jenga, you know, you, you, you pull the wrong, the wrong thing, and all of a sudden it all begins toppling down one after another. Paul says, you don't understand how serious this is that, that you're saying, eh, I don't think we rise again from the dead. I don't think there's a bodily resurrection. And so he begins to list them in, in verses 12 or verses 13 and following. He says, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If we don't in the future, those who are believers, those who are Christ, if, we're not, if we don't rise from the dead, then that means Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He, want, he, goes, he goes real big, real fast. He's like, I want you guys to understand how serious this distortion is. If what you're saying is true, then Jesus didn't even rise from the dead. And then he takes it another step further. If you deny the resurrection, then that means Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And if you deny the, the then, and if that's the case, verse 14 says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. All of this is empty. The message that we've proclaimed, this, this doctrine, he said, I've been willing to give my life for this. Why am I being willing to be subjected to fight with beasts? And we don't, I don't even really know what that means in verse 32, when he fought with beasts at Ephesus. Like, why am I subjecting myself to persecution and difficulty and trial if none of this is true? All that happens if you pull this, this one thing out of our faith, the rest begins to tumble. It's a house of cards. And he goes on to say, if that's the case, no resurrection, Jesus is not raised, our preaching is empty, and then he says in verse 19, and if we have, if only in Christ we have only hope in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. He said, he said, people should look on us like pathetic losers, wandering around believing and living in this fairy tale land. You might as well be an atheist. At least they're just trying to live it up for the moment. They say, ah, nothing's going to happen when we die. This is all there is. And that's the conclusion he comes to in verse 32. This is all there is. And he kind of quotes probably a, a proverb. Uh, uh, and he says, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's live it up for the moment, right? And, and this, this is what we've been sold in our culture for the last uh, 40 or 50 years. Just let's, let's be in the moment, live it up, live life to its fullest. You only live once. Paul says you might as well adopt that philosophy if you're kicking the resurrection to the curb because we're left with nothing. It's all just rubble and ashes that's how crucial the resurrection is. How about you, brothers and sisters? Do you hold fast to this hope of the resurrection? It starts with, of course, believing that Jesus truly did rise again from the dead, that that wasn't some smoke and mirrors show that the disciples orchestrated to convince the world he was still alive, but that he truly did rise from the dead. But furthermore, do you hold to this doctrine that believers will one day 
Whenever that is, when the trumpet sounds, will rise in Christ, the Bible says. Meet the Lord in the air, the resurrection of believers. This is so crucial. In fact, if you read most, most um, theologically sound uh, denominational doctrinal statements, well, this is, this is not a negotiable. It will be in there. We believe in the resurrection of the believers. The reason it's in there is primarily because of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul gets a little bit excited as he goes on. He's not, as, he's not being as hard on the Corinthians as with some of their other problems earlier in the book, but you can tell, you can hear his passion. I wish, like if, if, if there was like a, a Bible with emojis, you know, Paul would have been, been emojis would have been flying all over the place. Paul, if, he was, if we could hear him out loud as he's writing it down, if he's speaking out loud, his voice probably was raising a few octaves like Steve did in that video there as he uh, pounded the hot sauce. I, I, you can just hear Paul getting emotional about this. Guys, it's, it's all worthless. It all crumbles if we deny the resurrection. My brothers and sisters, hold fast to the resurrection. That's the necessity of the resurrection. But I want to talk for a few moments here about the hope of the resurrection. You see, um, if you get a chance to, if you've had a chance to listen to any of uh, Hunter and I's podcasts, we start off every episode with we we have this crazy notion that theology should be practical, and, and and I believe that all theology done rightly should impact our hearts. It's not just for the head; it, it should change our hearts and lives and impact are coming and going each and every day. And the doctrine of the resurrection is no different. It creates a hope, this deep-seated hope in our hearts as we walk through this life filled with trials and sorrows and ups and downs. There is hope. It brings us hope because it reminds us that Jesus keeps his promises. Jesus is First and foremost, a man of his word. God always does what he says. It tells us here in this passage, it tells us twice, verse 20 and 23, it tells us that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the one that gets the ball rolling. He's the, the first one. He was the, the, the first one out of the grave. And his resurrection guarantees that there's more to come. The first fruits. The rest of us follow. His ignites it. And then the fire spreads. I remember a few years ago, my family and I uh, went to Maine on vacation, and we went to this place um, that there was, uh, the, the boys really wanted to go cliff jumping, and there was this uh, place where there's a waterfall and, a, and then a, a drop-off. To me, it looked, standing up there, as someone who hates heights, it looked like about 100 feet. I think it was more like 25 or 30, but it looked like a mile down there. And uh, we had watched YouTube videos of this in, in, in this very location, and we had seen People jumping off the cliff. We saw where they were jumping off, and that, the, that according to the notes, that the pool below was very, very deep. It was safe to jump off, and, the, and according to the videos, people were swimming away safely, and everybody lived. There were no bodies being dashed on the rocks below. And um, but we got there, and there was nobody else there, and so there was that little hesitation in all of us, like. Is this really safe? Like, what is below that water? We didn't get to see anybody physically with our eyes jumping off. We had seen the YouTube videos. We'd, we'd read on the website that it was a safe place to jump. And uh, my wife's like, my kids are not jumping off that cliff until you do. And so it's like, if somebody's going to die, I think we all know who this is going to be. The guy who hates heights, you know. 
And so it took me the longest time working up that courage. I think even in the video, they, they were like taking a video and they had to start and stop the video about 10 times. They're like, you're using up all of our, all of our memory, Dad. You keep walking to the edge, walking away, walking to the edge. I don't think I can do this. And so finally, I work up the courage and I jump. And all it took was once them seeing that it was safe and then it was just like lemmings, just one after another. And all afternoon, them swimming, going back up, jumping again. And uh, I think that was the only jump I made. That one was enough for me. I, could, I was content to watch the rest of the afternoon. But all it took, I was sort of the first fruits of it. And once, once they saw it was safe, they followed. Jesus, the word of God tells us, he's the first fruits. He, he gets the ball rolling, and, and we can rest on the promises of God that resurrection for us will follow because Jesus initiated it. Jesus began it. But, it. but it also brings hope because the resurrection reminds us that God delights in giving good things. God longs to, to restore and to renew and give fresh life to our bodies. You see, James 1.17 tells us this, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. See, the resurrection body that we get will be perfect, free from any blemishes and flaws, You'll still be you. I believe you'll still be recognizable for who you are. But it will be without the marring of sin. God delights in bringing new life. God delights in giving good gifts to his people. There will not be any uh, secondhand bodies at the resurrection. No... Uh, quickly thrown together, shoddy craftsmanship, no some assembly required, no more Ikea furniture type bodies, nothing of the sort. We'll be whole, we'll be perfect, we'll be good, because that's the heart of our Father. He, he doesn't do a halfway job. And what this means then, as we receive there's no new body, and, and we don't, I don't really know what they're, what they're going to look like. The Bible doesn't give a lot of detail. We can learn from Jesus after his resurrection and some of the observations that we can make. But ultimately, we, we don't know a lot of details as to what this is, is going to look like. But what it means is that, um, well, this, the resurrection brings hope because there's no more suffering. There's no more falling apart. I know for a fact that some of you are here, sitting here this morning in, in excruciating pain, physical pain. Some of you are battling cancer, undiagnosed illnesses, depression. And, you know, we, we, we pray for healing for these things in this life. And sometimes God grants those things. But ultimately, we know, unless Jesus comes back before, we, we know the end of the story. Life is 100%, like the fatality rate of being here on earth is 100%. We know eventually we will breathe our last. And yet, the resurrection reminds us that there will be a day when, when there is no more pain, there is no more suffering. Charles Spurgeon, who knew a great deal of pain, 
during his ministries, physical pain. I know he wrestled with gout, among another number of other physical infirmities. He described a conversation with his body as it aged, and he said this, I said of this poor body, you've not yet been newly created. The venom of that old serpent still taints you, but you shall be delivered. You shall rise again if you die and are buried, or you shall be changed if the Lord should suddenly come today. You, you poor body, which drags me down to the dust and pain and sorrow, even you shall rise and be remain, remade in the redemption of the body. Spurgeon clung to that hope in the midst of his sorrow, in the midst of his suffering. One of my heroes, Johnny Erickson Tata, who many of you know is a quadriplegic and has suffered greatly in her life besides lifelong quadriplegia since she was in high school, lifelong pain. She's battled cancer several times in recent years. She wrote this. She said, I, I still can hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone with a spinal cord injury like me? Someone who has cerebral palsy, suffers from brain injuries, or has multiple sclerosis. Imagine the hope this gives someone who's manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, new hearts and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. The resurrection reminds us that this is not all there is. It's not you suffer a bunch and then you die. Cold blackness. The Bible says that we will be remade. We will give it, be given new bodies. This is the hope that we cling to, this great reversal of the curse. Paul spoke about this in Psalm 8. I love how he personifies it and, and, and says in Romans 8, beginning in verse 19, he says, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. I love that. Picture creation on the edge of its seat. Is it today, Lord? Is it today? We long for redemption. We long for renewal. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Every woman here who's gone through childbirth can understand Paul's picture there of all of creation. It's groaning, it's waiting. And not only the creation, he says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits, there's that word again, the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
This resurrection is pictured in this great reversal of the curse. That all that has been all that has been damaged and destroyed and ruined and marred of God's good creation, it will all become undone. Martin Luther has said, Our Lord has written the promise of the resurrection not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. The creation itself reminds us that there is a renewal coming, that there is a restoration. Every joint pain, every, every time our body doesn't do what we, our brain is telling it to do, every time we toss and turn and can't sleep, all of that is the groaning of the longing for the redemption and the renewal and restoration of all things, the resurrection of our bodies. Johnny Erickson Tata goes on to say, somewhere in my broken, paralyzed body is the seed of what I shall become. The paralysis makes me what I am. I'm sorry, the paralysis makes what I am to become all the more grand when you contrast atrophied, useless leg against splendorous, resurrected legs. I'm convinced that if there are mirrors in heaven, and why not, the image I'll see will be unmistakably Johnny, although a much better brighter Johnny. You see, the resurrection is not just a doctrinal reality, this, this cold set of truths that we need to adhere to if we're to be a Christian. Yes, I check that off. I believe that. It's a truth that jumps off the page and into our hearts. One day, we will be given new bodies. We will rise again. And the resurrection will give us the courage we need. Knowing that we, we will rise again gives us the courage we need to face tomorrow, whatever it brings. To face the next hardship, the next bump in the road, the, the, the next boulder in the road. The resurrection encourages our hearts and enables us to press on. I'm going to close with a story that's alluded to in Hebrews chapter 11. Y'all know Hebrews chapter 11, right? The, the hall of faith, well-known passage that lists men and women throughout the Old Testament who have clung to God's promises by faith. There's an interesting mention as he's sort of winding it down and bringing a summary of a number of people. Um, let, me, let me begin in verse 32. He says, the writer of Hebrews is just sort of winding it down. He's focused on several key patriarchs and figures in the Old Testament. And, and he says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the, the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And then he says this in verse 35. He says, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, 
refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. We don't really have any Old Testament story to connect that to, but there is a, a book that you'll find in, in, uh, in Catholic Bibles. It's a deuterocanonical book called Second Maccabees. Second Maccabees tells a story of the Maccabean revolt that took place in between what we call the, 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 the silent years, between the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. There was 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. And, and, and there were a lot that was going on in Jewish history. And uh, in the book of Second Maccabees, there is a story related from those days about a mother who had seven sons. And the, the wicked emperor who was persecuting the Jews in those days was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Evil man, hated the Jews, desecrated the temple. And he was urging people to renounce their faith in the one true God, in Yahweh. And it came to these seven sons, and he told them to renounce their faith or die. And their mother came alongside the seven, and, and she cheered them on and encouraged them to stay true to their faith, to hold fast to their confession and their belief in God. This vicious dictator prepared a cauldron of boiling water and said, whoever did not renounce their faith in Yahweh would be thrown in. And one by one, this woman's sons were put to death. Even until the last son, it is said, the mother refused to give in. She encouraged them. She encouraged them to stand firm in their faith. How in the world could a mother do that? Watch Seven of her sons die before her very eyes. How in the world could she endure such unbearable agony? Hebrews tells us some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. You see, the resurrection, it's not a cold, dusty doctrine that is for the bookshelves or the ivory towers. The future resurrection of the saints is a truth that can leap out of the pages, must leap out of the pages of Scripture and into our hearts to fortify us in times of trial, to give us comfort and encouragement during temptation, during suffering, even those moments when we're tempted to walk away, to throw in the towel. The reminder that because Jesus is the first fruits, because he rose, one day soon, I hope, that trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and meet the Lord in the air. And we will know what it's like to be free of the shackles of sin and the bondage of corruption and walk in that newness of life. My brothers and sisters, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that our Savior lives. Your word 
is so abundantly clear and eyewitnesses add extra credibility. The way that the world was changed through the message of the apostles only underscores what we already know, that, that Jesus stepped out of that grave three days later. And because he did, we know that one day we will. God, I thank you for that promise. Lord, this week, would you use this specific truth to breathe hope into the lives of my brothers and sisters? God, I don't know where everybody is today. I don't know how my brothers and sisters are suffering, what sins they're battling with, discouragement, mental illness. Father, I pray that today and the days ahead, the promise of being resurrected just like our Savior would be refreshing, reinvigorating to their hearts. May we speak often of these promises to one another, reassure and encourage one another that because Jesus is alive, we too will one day rise from the dead. And your promises will be realized as the world and your all creation ceases from its groaning and walks in the redemption that was secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the new covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. May God strengthen you this week as you rest in the resurrection.